That's good. Everyone that responds to the altar call, I like that. My, my son-in-law started this church. I think I may have mentioned it in one session. I don't remember. Anyway, he started this church, and we were real proud of him and my daughter. They worked real hard the first two years. Didn't hardly see any growth, but eventually they had a breakthrough, and things are happening. But one of the neat things they do, uh, they started this way in a school, is they let people fill their coffee cup and bring it into the auditorium with them. Now, in the school, it's just, you know, they just had hard ground, no carpet, didn't matter, easy to clean up. So everybody just bring it in, sit down, worship. And then he has this little moment where uh, right after the offering, before he preaches, they do a little, you know, this is what's going on, and they let you hug people and refill your coffee cup. So you can actually drink coffee while he's preaching. And I I thought, now, that's just going to be weird. But after about three weeks, I was hooked. I said, this is the most fun I've ever had in church. I like coffee. He's just preaching. It's just like being at home on a couch almost, drinking coffee. So I I just wanted to add to that. Go ahead and bring out the popcorn and the drinks. Let's get started. And while I'm talking tonight, we'll just, uh, we'll enjoy this thing a whole lot more, you know, and just see what the Lord wants to do. I want to add to to the comment about, let me ask you a question. Do you believe scripturally you are your brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Let me help you. If you, you know, you're a little quiet on me there. I'll know a little bit about what Mark's going to share in the morning, and some of it will empower you to help your brother. If you're not the one that falls and someone else is, we are responsible for one another. We're like those uh, cliff climbers all roped together. If one falls, it affects everyone. And if, we all, if one makes it, we all should make it. And there needs to be that kind of brotherhood among the brotherhood. Amen. And so I want you to come back to hear that part of it as well, because it may be someone else, and he's going to help you know how to respond, because that's an uncomfortable thing for all of us, and not knowing how to respond, this is going to, I just, just make sure and be here tomorrow. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here tonight. Weren't those kids incredible? The the grandpa and me just kind of got excited. I like that. I, I was enjoying watching those little guys. Rita and I have seven grandsons. And so uh, I know she doesn't look old enough. Uh, I, I, people never tell me that, but they do say that to her. You know, at least one of us still gets it. I was thinking about our picture, what it would look like up there, and, and it would look like a whole lot of pounds ago for me. You know, I was a skinny little guy. So uh, it's just amazing uh, how we change over the years. The one thing that stays the same is the Lord. Amen? Aren't you glad He doesn't change? He's so good to us. Well, I shared with you that I wanted to speak about the anointing, and I do. I believe the anointing is very important. In the Old Testament, the anointing was often signified by oil that would be poured on the priest or on a king or whatever it was that they were being anointed for, and part of what it represented is always the activity of the Holy Spirit. The oil is representative of the Holy Spirit being poured on them, and though they could not see the Holy Spirit any more than we can see air, we can see the wind, we can see the, well, we see the evidence of wind, we can't see wind, but we can know it's moving because it affects other things. In the same way, we can't see the Holy Spirit, but we can know when He's at work because He has impact and effect, and we can see it. Well, they couldn't see the Holy Spirit, but the oil represented the Holy Spirit coming on them and covering them. You know the story about Aaron, how it was poured over his head down on his beard and down on the garments. and set, But it also stands for a separation, saying that once this anointing has been put on you, you are now separate for a purpose. Now, they would have to be anointed sometimes for a position for life and then have to be anointed again for a certain process and certain things they're responsible for, and each time there would be a new anointing for the things they were doing. That's where we first get the word anointing. It comes out of the Old Testament. If we're not careful... If we're not careful, we'll, we'll misunderstand the anointing for the Spirit baptism. See, I've met some people that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and are filled with the Holy Spirit, but are not living a separate and powerful life. It's important that we put our hands around this reality. I believe sometimes tongues is a little bit like smoke. I don't mean that disrespectful at all. Let me explain what I mean. I mean, before the fire actually flames up, smoke will begin to come, and the smoke will precede the fire, and then the fire comes. And then when the fire goes out, the smoke will still be there. The tongues come at the beginning, and the tongues can still be there when the fire's gone out. But the reality is, 
we need more than tongues to be all God's called us to be as a Pentecostal church. We need the fire. And so it's this reality that the anointing is more. It is something above and beyond speaking in tongues and saying, I have the Holy Spirit, therefore I'm anointed. No, what I'm speaking of is more than that. Trying to explain the anointing is not easy, but I, I like it. There was a black preacher that said it better than anybody. I, I think he summed it up when he was asked, what is the anointing? And he kind of got that deep voice of his, and he said, well, sir, I don't really know what it is, but I sure know when it ain't. And I think there's some powerful truth in that, that there's something about it. It's like, a, it's like the airplanes, when they first begin to have transatlantic flight, they would take off and head toward England and be well on their way, and they'd calculated how much fuel and how long, how much time. But every once in a while, one of the planes would arrive in almost half the time and have a lot of fuel left over, and the pilot would say, I couldn't believe when I looked down and there was land. How did we get here so quick? At the time, they didn't understand weather patterns, but later they would find out about a thing called the jet stream. And when they would get up in that jet stream, they would make incredible time going across the transatlantic or the Atlantic Ocean as they would make that flight. Sometimes the anointing's kind of like that. I think I remember the first time I experienced what I'm going to teach about tonight. I was a youth pastor at First Assembly of God in Mesquite, Texas. Pastor Hood had asked me to preach on a Sunday morning. Now, for a man to be, for a man on that staff to be able to preach in his service, that was quite an honor. It was a scary honor, as a matter of fact. I prepared myself as well as I knew how. I prayed through God to give me a message out of the book of Haggai. I was excited. I had, I had done my word studies. I had prepared. I was planned. I was organized. I knew. I got up and began to preach that day. And all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, I began to say things I'd never considered. I became good. I was hearing myself for the first time, and I was impressed with what I was saying. It was just flowing. It was dynamic. It was powerful. It was according to the outline, but it was way beyond the outline. It was as though something had picked me up, and this flow was just coming. And you could see the eyes of the people, and their hearts were swelling up. Something was happening that was way beyond a human speech. I'd never experienced it. I'd preached some youth things. I, I'd been involved in youth, I'd, I'd, but I'd never known what I was experiencing that day. When I walked away, I said, I don't know what that was, but I realized it's a whole lot better with it than without it. And then the old man told me, he said, son, boy, that's what we call the anointing. I haven't forgot that word. I still like it. I think it still fits that moment and experience. It's kind of like being at the airport when you have the one sidewalk that's motorized and it's just moving and you step over there and you walk on that motorized sidewalk and you are, you're just flying, but you're not walking any faster, but you're passing everybody. You know, you're not this good, but it's just good to think you're this good and you're just moving right on, on that side. Have you ever done it? Isn't that kind of fun? And then there's always some person with their suitcase in the way, but we won't go there. The anointing is an incredible thing. It's a powerful thing. And there's so much that we could begin to, to kind of consider. But it's more than just being spirit-filled. It's being spirit-full. It's being spirit-empowered, spirit-led, spirit-enabled. It is literally, in a sense, being carried on by the Holy Spirit so that you begin to operate more in who He is than in who you are. It begins to be about what He's thinking more than what you're thinking. It begins to be about what he can do more than what you can do. There is something incredible. And just because we speak in tongues doesn't mean we're flowing in that kind of an anointing. But I will tell you, I will tell you that it's there and it's available and we're going to break through some scriptures and see what God will say to us about it tonight. But as I begin to speak, I want you to begin to think about it in your own life and consider those times in your life when you've experienced it and times when you have not. I think one of the best ways to understand it is, again, in the Old Testament is Samson. He had the anointing. He had not really prepared himself for it, but God gave him clear criteria of how to walk in the power of the Spirit and in the anointing that was available. He continued to live on the edge of, of, of what was required of him until finally he stepped over. And there was that moment after his head was shaved, and he didn't even realize it, but he got up as he had at other times. You know the scripture. You've preached it. And he shook himself, and one more time going to take on this enemy, the Philistines, and he shook himself. And I love Old Testament. You can't beat Old... You, I mean, uh, I love the King James on this one. You can't beat King James. And he wished not, for the Spirit had left him. That's a great way to say it. He didn't even know that he had lost it. 
We're going to look at Saul in a little bit. We're going to look at some others as we walk through. But I'm afraid sometimes what has happened to the church is too often we've lived too close to the edge to see how much we could get away with, how much time we could spend with Delilah, how much time we could spend in other things. Rather than going after more of the anointing of the Almighty God, we're seeing how much world can we bring into our life and somehow still be okay. But the truth is, in many cases, it's already happened that they have stood up, shaken themselves, not even knowing that the Holy Spirit has left them. And they declare, but I still speak in tongues. Listen, that smoke where there used to be fire. What we need to do is get the fire started again. We need to get back to good old fashioned. I know old fashioned. I like that word. It fits right here real well. A good old fashioned, powerful anointing of the almighty God that moves us in a way that we cannot move. What's happening in our nation today, what's happening around this country, what's happening with the gay agenda, what's happening with every other kind of party lifestyle that's been expressed as normal in this world is literally taking hold in this nation at a level I I shared today even at a table. It's a concern of mine. I used to preach and say, if, if we don't see revival, if we don't see the activity of God, the rising up and the healing and the preparation and the power and anointing again on the church in, in the United States of America, that in 20 years, everything Europe is will be. I can't even say that anymore. We're gaining on them. In 10 years, we will be where they are. And at this rate, someday we will lead the world in sin. And we cannot fix that with our institutions and our education. We cannot fix that with good books and good examples to follow and good models to model our church after. We are only going to fix that with a fresh and powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit that brings us back to spiritual power, impacting work of the ministry. I appreciate our education. I appreciate what we know. I appreciate what we're learning. I appreciate the fact that the Pentecostals are embracing the importance of education. But in all honesty, we were planting more churches before we were educated than we are now. And it's not the education that has hurt us. It's the fact that we have lost the anointing and not realized it. I can't fix everyone, but I would like by the end of this service for you and I to make a decision to be anointed men and women of God and start with us and see what God will do. I want to begin with 1 Kings. Y'all thought I had began. That was just warm up. Nothing's really started yet, just so you know. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19, we're going to look at how Elijah passed the mantle off to Elisha, and the mantle very clearly represents the anointing in this sense. We'll clarify that as we go. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Saphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come be with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. How powerful. Father, in the name of Jesus, I need the anointing tonight. I know I've preached this before. I've written down things you've said to me. And maybe it's all here, but it may not be. There may be things in your heart for us that I've never considered, but I ask if that be the case, that by your power and anointing, things that need to be said would be said. I pray that by the prophetic power of the Spirit, things that need to be broken would be broken. I pray that those who need to be awakened would be awakened. I pray that this would be more than information. It would be an activity of God in our midst that we may leave here with a desire for the anointing like never before. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an incredible thing that we don't totally get the picture of it, but there's Elisha out doing what he does. He's a good family young man. He's, he's kind of taking over the family business, it seems. He's plowing away. He's doing his work. He's got all the servants working. They're just doing great. They're getting their work done. And in the midst of that, suddenly this great prophet Elijah 
comes up to him, walks right out into the middle of his life, into the middle of his world, into the middle of his workplace, in the middle of his family's stuff and what they own, the family business, walks right into the middle, takes his cloak and throws it up over his shoulders and then just drags it off. When he does that, something happens to Elisha. Something gets a hold of him. He experiences something, feels something, encounters something, something happens. When it happens to him, it's so precious and so powerful, so unique and so wonderful that without even thinking, he turns and looks at Elisha and says, I'll be right there. All I ask you to do is let me kiss my parents goodbye because I'm coming after you. He said, what have I done to you? And he said, just go do what you need to do. And he no, I am coming after you. What in the world happened? I believe with all my heart that all the power that was represented by that cloak, all the working of the Holy Spirit, all the fullness of the activity or the anointing of God that was in that cloak for just a minute settled upon him and he felt the power and the presence of the Almighty God. Once he felt that, he knew he could never just be somebody anymore. He knew once he felt that, he needed to own that. He needed to have that. He needed that. As a matter of fact, once he experienced it, he said, I would rather have that than all of this. And he made a decision to go after the anointing that was caught up in that man and represented by that cloak. That day in, a, in Mesquite, Texas, what I experienced was so powerful. I'd never experienced that before. The next time I preached, it didn't happen. And the next time I preached, it was good information, I guess, but it wasn't the same. There was something different. And I began to seek God and say, God, I don't know what you did to me, but I feel a little bit like Elisha must have felt when the cloak went over his shoulders. Now that you've given me a taste of it, I don't want to live without it. Now that I know a little bit what that feels like, I realize there's a difference between a speech on Sunday morning and a sermon preached out of the portals of heaven. I want that. God, that's what's going on. I saw what it did in the people. I saw the power of it. It's not just a thought. It's not just good education. There was something spiritual in that. And now that I've tasted it, God, I've got to have, what do I have to do to have that? And I begin to go after it and seek after it. I believe it was something like Elisha who said, I'll, I've got to do what, I'll burn this. I'll give this up. I'll give up the ministry the way everybody says it should be. I'll walk away from being youth pastor. If you want me to go somewhere, I'll walk away. Whatever it is, it really doesn't matter. Because once you've tasted the true anointing of God, there's no other kind of ministry that can satisfy you. There's no other life that can satisfy you. My concern is that we've produced a generation who've never felt it, encountered it. And even what I'm saying tonight, it seems alien to them. They speak in tongues and they think that's it. They don't know that that's the beginning of something and that God has so much more. Tonight I want to show you the process that God revealed to me and I believe it's just scriptures, all it is. And I believe it'll help you as it helped me. From the time the anointing touched him, something happened. And it seems to me that it is, the prop, it is the responsibility of the generation that knows the anointing to make sure the next generation experiences the anointing. There's something about this one generation touching the other generation with an anointed touch. Not just don't fall in. Don't give you that have preached under the anointing, that have known the power of anointing in your ministry. You have known what that is, but maybe it's not there today. I want to call you to be responsible to stir it up so that your young men and young women experience the anointing from your ministry. They taste and see it and know it. And they know it's not just your ability to communicate. It's not just your leadership skills, but there's something spiritual going on in the atmosphere and in your ministry that reaches out and touches them, that literally makes them come up to you and say, what is it? What is it about you? What's going on in your life? Until it makes them hunger for the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason this generation is not as hungry for the power of the Holy Spirit is that those who have once had it are no longer operating in it the way they once did. And so it's not being, they're not being touched by it. They're not experiencing it. And it is the responsibility of those my age and older to make sure that the young people touched and are felt and feel the Holy Spirit. The anointing of one generation must touch the next. 
The reality of the value of the anointing, the favor, the grace, the blessing that is all a process of this incredible anointing of the Lord must become the priority. But I think if we don't make it a priority, I'm afraid maybe we have sold it, and I'll deal with that later, but just maybe we have sold it out, and so we don't have it like we once did because of our own self. The willingness, the willingness has to, are you listening to me? I'm fixing to go somewhere, and I don't want you to miss this. The willingness in Elisha to burn the plow has to still be in us today. The willingness to give up our future, the willingness to give up what we were going to lean on and trust in to pay our bills and take care of our life, the, the determination that we had to be a part of our family and to continue on in the routine and the, and the way that was set before us. You must be willing to burn that plow. You must be willing to kiss your old life goodbye. You must be willing to say, I will no longer just be another preacher with an outline and a plan. I am determined to be a man and a woman of God who will walk in the power and the anointing. I am kissing that goodbye. I am burning that even though it's profitable, even though it pays well. I would rather have the anointing than another paycheck. I would rather have the power of God than the approval of men. I really want that. And until you are there, some say, well, I, yes, I want that, but I also want this. I want the check and I, and I want approval and I want the anointing. Can't we have it all? Maybe so. Maybe the Lord can trust you with that much. But I know this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You must choose the activity of God to be at work in your life in full power as your priority or you'll never walk in a full anointing. No one can serve two masters. And if you're going to be close to the anointing, be careful. Ananias and Sophia, they played close to the church. They participated. They even said that they were totally in and completely committed, but they weren't really totally in and completely committed. They held back a portion for themselves. And today there are too many holding back a portion for themselves and they're getting close to the anointing. But when you get close to a spiritual powerful thing without committing to it, it is more dangerous for you than if you had never went after it. It cost them their life and more than that, their eternity. It's the same with the Ark of the Covenant. When they followed it in, and, and in, as it approached the place where it would, the ox would stumble, and it would lean over on Uzzah, and he would touch it, and he would fall to his death, it would have been better that he had not been close to the Ark than to be close enough to touch it when he shouldn't. This anointing thing is not a game we play. It's not something we do for a while and then put up. It's not something we decide we want and then we turn away from it. What I'm talking about is a lifestyle sold out to the power and anointing and the working of the Holy Spirit that says it doesn't matter what it costs me. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that His anointing is better than any other way the church can be the church. And I know that we have a nation and a city and a community that will never be turned around by the power of my preaching unless that preaching is anointed, that I I'll never be able to turn this city upside down unless I am being empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. That all the wisdom, all the books, all the education, all the understanding, all the unity, all the commitment of others, for it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Something has to stir us and drive us to that place. If we play with it too close, we'll leave. We'll leave in worse shape than we came. I'll bring that out in the end. So what did he do? He followed him. We know he washed his hands and he served him. It's interesting, and we must understand this reality, that too many people want the anointing, but they're not willing to be the attendant of someone who has the anointing. It's important. It's important that you spend a little time washing the hands of those that God's got his hand on. It's, it's good that you spend some time taking care of their busy work, just being close to them. There's something about that that puts you in the lineage. It puts you in line. It puts you in proximity. It puts you in a place where God can do what it is he wants to do. First, he's doing it in you. But in them, you see how they act, how they respond. You're watching them and learning. Jesus, the first thing he said to those 12 men was, just come be with me. Just come be with me. I don't want you to do anything because you wouldn't do it right anyway. Just come be with me. Come watch what I do. Come listen to what I do. 
Come see where I stay. Come find out what I eat. Come learn how I respond. Just watch me. And the Lord wants us to find someone with an anointing and just watch them. Just go where they go. Do what they, just be with them. And pay the price to be there. If the price to be there means I'm going to be the youth pastor and, and I'm going to clean toilets and I'm going to, it doesn't really matter. I'm paying a price to be with somebody that's got the anointing. I want to see how the anointed man operates. I need to learn the rules and the process because someday I want to own that anointing. Someday I want to be anointed. And you must realize that though Elisha had been touched by the anointing, he did not own it. From being touched by it, don't believe that one time touched and that one time the anointing was there. And you can think back and remember how you experienced this divinity of God flowing in your life. And you said, wow, wow, I've got it. Now I've got it. And then next time you didn't have it because something's there. You have to become the owner of it. And the process of ownership comes later. We see this process in chapter 2. It says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a world, men. Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Isn't it funny? He could not shake Elisha. He could not get rid of him. He wouldn't stay in school with the other kids. He wanted this thing. So Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives, and he ain't dying, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Bethel. It's a powerful process that he would begin in him. And at, 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 in the beginning, as he moved toward Bethel, I'm just going to, for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you the cities they went and in the order. On the way to Bethel, he stopped at a place called Gilgal. It's actually his first stop. And on the way to, to Bethel, and then from Bethel he'll move on and finally he'll cross the Jordan and then the great activity will take place. If you'll just give me a moment, I want to break this down. Gilgal, the first stop. What happens at Gilgal? Gilgal's famous. Joshua chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. It said, at this time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circled the Israelites at Gilgal. Circumcised, not circled. <laughs> they wish they just got circled. Anyway, I, <laughs> now I know you're listening. He circumcised them at, what circumcision? Well, you know what it is, but what does it symbolize? It symbolized dealing with the flesh. Are you still listening? If you want to walk in the anointing, the first stop along the way was Gilgal. It's the place where you deal with your flesh. People who continue to be indulgent with their flesh, they are not willing to separate themselves and their flesh away from the ways of men and the ways of sin, and the ways of others. Rather than trying to control their flesh and bring it in and subdue it and say no to it, they are constantly trying to see how much flesh can I release and still have the will of God? How much can I participate and still get what God has? Can I please God or at least go to heaven and still do this or this or this? If you really want to walk in the anointing, now I'm going to get a little upfront and personal, so just stay with me. If you're going to get a little, if you want to get in the anointing, you're going to have to deal with what your ears hear. That's flesh. You're going to have to make a decision on what you listen to. I'm not just talking, I know we preach against music and all of that, and it sure has its place, but I'm talking about what you let people say about other people. I'm talking about gossip. I'm talking about this whole process that when you begin to defile and allow yourselves to be touched with unclean stuff, you are, you are not dealing with your flesh. And somehow to reach in and find that place where you say, wait a minute, I don't really need to hear all the gossip. I don't need all this junk and all these opinions and attitudes dumped into my life. I want the anointing. And for the sake of the anointing, I'm going to say no to letting my flesh indulge in all this trash. It's also about our eyes and what we see, what we look at. Oh, easily we could go into pornography and we could go into all the things that our eyes see, but it's not just that. Sometimes if we're not careful, we let our eyes lust after things other people own. We begin to look at what our neighbor has and we want it also. And the lust of our eyes begins to be for what the sinners have that we don't have and what the world has that we're not allowed. And if it's not long, your eyes will begin to cause you to want things that'll take you away from the anointing. All of the flesh, what your hands touch, it's when their hands would touch an unholy 
holy thing, they would then become unclean and unable to fulfill what they had been anointed to do and would have to go back through a cleansing process and, and a time period before they could be restored in the Old Testament. And even our mouths, what we say, what we say. But I'm taking it a little further. I'm a little concerned about our movement. Young people especially, I want you to listen to me. I'm concerned. I'm partly concerned because this week, at my office last week, I had to deal with some issues, and so it's fresh on me, of some young people who made it clear through an action they took that they would rather have the right to drink alcohol that was more important to them than being assemblies of God. Well, if that's, if that, they said they believe what we believe in their spirit field, but their goal is to drink alcohol. That was very important to them. I said, how can that be important? Why is it that important? What's the deal? Do you enjoy the buzz that much? Is it that good? You know, in the old days, we used to get drunk in the spirit. Maybe we should reintroduce that if that's what you're looking for. I'm not sure what it is you want. If it's, if you're wanting to fit in with the American culture, would you look up on the internet how many people died last year because of alcoholism and how many families were ruined last year because of alcoholism and if you would get a hold of the scripture that clearly states and declares if it offends my brother even to eat meat I won't eat meat can't somebody stand up and say it I know I'm not calling it a sin I'm just calling it stupid and it's not right and what that says to me is we would rather see how close we can get to the world than how close we can get to the Holy Spirit and to the anointing of an almighty God. And this watering, and I know it's a big deal right now, but it shouldn't be a big deal right now. We shouldn't be worried about this. This should not be an effort. And I told those young people, you can go, hit the road. I love you. I'm going to love you going out. And if you change, you can come back. The door will be open. But we will not lower the standard because we're not trying to figure out how to make the door wide. Jesus declared it was narrow. What we're trying to do is find a way to get the power of the Holy Spirit back in the house of God so that we can shake this nation with righteousness and hope and truth and healing. I thought about those young people and my concern is that they've never known the anointing I've known. They've never tasted what I've tasted. I can't believe they have because what I tasted when I tasted the anointing, when the cloak came across my shoulders, made me to say I would rather have that than anything the world has to offer. I would rather have that than acceptance of any group. I would rather have that than something that calms my nerves. I would rather have the Holy Spirit anointing than anything I've yet seen in this world. My thought is they've not seen it. They've not tasted and seen how good it is, oh God, that may be my fault. And after he had dealt with the flesh at Gilgal, they went to Bethel. Bethel, the house of God, the place of encounter and devotion. Until you have a personal house of God, you'll never know the anointing. I just did a whole series last year in our district that we worked through. We called it the year of the altar. And we dealt with the restoration of five altars that must be in every church. And the number one altar that I preached was the pastor himself needs a private altar. I said to our ministers, uh, I said it in every stop as I worked through the district. I, in every stop, I said, man and woman of God, if you do not have a personal devotion life, I give you two weeks to fix it or turn in your card. You have no right to call yourself a minister of the gospel if you do not spend personal private time with God on a regular basis. If you can't do that, you've disqualified yourself. Now you're all glad you're in Ohio. We walked through the five altars. The last one was an altar of salvation for the church. But we covered all the altars. But it's all built on the altar of the man and woman of God. If you don't have a place alone with God, if you don't have a Bethel, the beginning is to go to Bethel, that place where he wrestled with God, the place where God touched him and caused him to walk with the limp and changed his name. You've got to have that. And you've got to have it daily. You've got to have it regularly. I get up in the morning. Now here, I've only been getting up between 5.30 and 6 because you messed me all up because it's earlier here. But at home, I get up by almost every day. Pastor, that's so early. No, it's not. Go to bed at nine. <laughs> it's easy. Just go to bed at nine. You can get up at five. That's how I do it. Oh, but you, why do you do it so early? I do it early because I don't want anything else going on in my mind that's going to keep my mind off of him. I want to be fresh where the only thought I'm having is me and Jesus and a cup of coffee. I do drink coffee. 
And we have this incredible encounter time. And he speaks to me. And I write what he tells me. And I listen more than I talk. And I study his scripture and I break it down. And I just, I'm in no hurry. I, don't, I get up early because I don't want to hurry. I don't want to have to run to the office. And then I talk about what he talks to me about. And we just have conversation. And then I talk to him about things I know I need to talk about. And then I use the Lord's prayer as a model. And I pray through the things. And I just spend time. And sometimes I look up and it's been three hours. People say, how do you do that? I say, I don't know. I just show up and I'm not in a hurry. And I read a lot. And I have to, some of it's just studying scripture. But the idea is it's Bethel to me. It's where I encounter God. I begin to develop that Bethel when I was a youth pastor. Something got a hold of me. And I started looking in that church. I was just a kid youth pastor. I said, where am I going to pray? And I went around behind the choir, choir loft and there was a choir room. And then there was little rooms off the choir room that I don't even know. I think they're supposed to hold robes or something. And I found one of them. I said, this is my spot. I was back there. I was back there many, just after many years of being gone, I was back there to help the church through a problem. The little lady that was the cleaning lady, when I was there, was still the little cleaning lady. And she's been there for like 35 years. And she said, she said, Brother Rick, I still clean your prayer room. I said, you still remember where I prayed? She said, oh, I'd hear you praying. And I'd know not to go back there. I found me a spot. I said, God, can this be my Bethel? I want that anointing, but I know I'm not just going to get it if I don't develop a relationship with you that nobody knows about but me and you, a private, powerful Bethel, a place of encounter. I began to develop that early. I learned that. I, ski, I defend that. I fight that. When I came from pastoring into this district office, I saw the schedule, and it's so much more business, and it's not quite as church. And I saw, and I realized I could easily lose that. And so I told my secretary, let me explain something to you clearly. Do not schedule appointments for me before 10 o'clock because I will spend time with God. And if they want to meet me, tell them life is hard, isn't it? Because the man is going to be with Jesus and you're going to have to work around his appointment with Jesus. That one comes first. And we fight for that because Bethel is one of the steps toward the anointing. I have to deal with the flesh. And now that I'm dealing with my flesh, a part of that strengthens me to go and build a Bethel. And if you haven't conquered your flesh, you can't build a Bethel. Are y'all still with me? It's so important. You must learn to do these things. The law required them to tend the fire, that once the fire would fall and the fire of God would consume, then that fire would become holy fire. It was the fire of heaven, the fire out of the cloud. They would become responsible for that fire. So in the law, he told them, when the fire comes, do not let it go out by day or by night. It was the job of the priest to add oil to the lamp in the morning and in the evening. It was the job of other priests to add wood to the fire on the altar in the morning and in the evening. Why? Because they didn't want fire added from the outside. They didn't want false fire brought in. They didn't want them to. And, and when it was in inauguration time and Moses is up there and Aaron and his boys you know the story how two of the boys the fire came out of the cloud but the other two got impatient and they would rather ha they would rather look good are you listening to me they would rather look good in front of people than have the real fire so they didn't wait on the real anointing they didn't wait on the real activity they went and found some other fire and they introduced fire that was not from heaven and when they did the fire of God came across and killed them both and dropped them dead right again don't be close to the anointing unless you're working to get the anointing. It's a powerful thing. But that fire, you don't want false fire. And I'm afraid we have large churches that have gathered great crowds using showmanship and large fire. But there is a fire, an anointing, that's going to someday consume every bit of that. And it's going to put all of that out. And the true fire and the true anointing is going to come forth. And that is what this world needs. That's what Paul meant when he said to the Galatians, you were running well. Who cut in on you? Who bewitched you? And I look at the American church and we're so bewitched and we're reading all the books of all the guys and I read their books and their processes and I can't find anybody saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I so appreciated our pastor up in, up in New York, uh, uh, Jim Cimbala. I appreciated what he had to say, bringing us back again to the importance of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I'm afraid the Pentecostals have drank the Kool-Aid. We need to drink some Kool-Aid, but we need to drink this Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid saying, we want the anointing of the Almighty God. Wow. After Bethel, he said, now let's go to Jericho. 
And once again, they had their encounter. And he said, uh, you know, I'm not reading all that, but he said, stay here while I go to Jericho. And he said, no, as long as you live and the Lord lives, I'll not leave you. I'm sticking right with you. And they went to Jericho. What does Jericho represent? Jericho represents a few things. Let's just look at Jericho, the very activity of Jericho and the the falling of the walls. There were six days in a row that they just walked around the wall and went home. On the seventh day, they walked around seven times, and on the seventh time, they shouted and blew the trumpets, and God put the walls down. The first part is the six days. To me, that represents six days of obedience. It represents your public life. It represents what you do every day. The things you do every day determine. It's not just the things you do in private in Bethel, and it's not just the conquering of your flesh in certain areas that you're battling, but it is also what you do in public, how you live your life. It's your daily walk. There's a daily walk that's required if you're going to walk in the anointing. You've got to get that right. Your Monday through Friday, your Monday through Saturday, it matters. It's not just Sunday. You can't just come in on Sunday and worship in a certain style or worship for a certain length of time or or break through or hear a certain sermon and have the anointing. No, if you're going to walk in this anointing that he was going after, he took him to Jericho. I can only, I can imagine him standing there at Jericho and he said, remember before, how many of you have been to Israel and you've seen that old, what's the the remains of that old city? And he stands there, can you imagine him standing there and saying, son, remember all this pile of stuff here, this is where old Jericho used to be the first Jericho. Remember, the children of Israel came over this, and every day they had to just be faithful. They had to be faithful on Monday and faithful on Tuesday and faithful on Wednesday. They had to be faithful on Thursday. And while they were being faithful in their walk and their obedience, they were not allowed to speak. As a matter of fact, they had to keep their mouth shut and their weapons holstered. Sometimes I think we become so responsive and so protective. When God was about to do something, we bow up and pick a fight at the wrong time. We stand up and defend ourselves when if we'd have just let low a little bit longer, God was about to come through. There's something to be said for keeping your weapons holstered and not drawn and not fighting, just walking, just walking faithfully to God, walking in public, in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of people making fun of you and trying to bring down your reputation. You just stay faithful. When you're walking through that situation and you want to fight back and you want to defend yourself and you want somebody to do, and you're just walking through it and you just, all this is going on and you want to say something, but you don't. You're supposed to be quiet, but you just do it and tomorrow you do it and the next day you do it and then your old flesh says we're not getting anywhere I don't see any crack in the wall then you look over at your flesh and say flesh I'm on my walk to the anointing I'm gonna walk faithful every day because I want the anointing I want to come out on the other side with the power of the Holy Spirit that'll bring down walls the power of the Holy Spirit that'll bring down giants the power of the Holy Spirit that'll turn this town back upright before God I need that anointing and if right now everybody's against me if the church is against me if the deacons are against me, if the pastor is against me, if the family's against me, it really doesn't matter. There's a walk and I'm going to stay righteous. I'm going to keep looking like Jesus, talking like Jesus, staying faithful to Jesus. Why? Because I want the anointing. That's the motivation. That's the passion. If I do this, there is an activity of God that'll come my way, an anointing that'll break the yoke. It's that Jericho thing. It's powerful. When David stood before Saul, he almost wept because he had drawn his sword and cut off the edge of his robe. And he said, oh God, forgive me. When they said, David, go ahead and take his life. Defend yourself. He said, I will not touch the anointed of the Lord. Why was he so concerned about the one who had been separated and anointed by the oil of Israel, representing the Holy Spirit's anointing? He he understood that all he had, the only thing that caused him to take down that giant out in the middle of nowhere with a sling was the anointing at work in his life. And he said, I don't want to kill that anointing. I want to own that anointing. I don't want to hinder and fight against it. I want to own it someday. I want to be able to defeat enemies and release Israel and bring victory to the house. But I I have to have that anointing. I receive it. I bless it. I understand it. I appreciate it. And I refuse to touch it. Even if the man wearing it isn't wearing it correctly. If you don't value the anointing, then all this work and all that I'm asking of you and all that the scripture seems to be pointing us to doesn't mean anything. It's not worth it. But if you understand it, the power of it, An anointed person in prayer could easily spend the rest of the time just on prayer. I've, all year I preach so much on prayer. 
it's just so much in me for it, too much. But in Acts chapter 9, Peter's in the room of Tabitha. She's dead. The room's filled with mourners. He sends them out. He clears the room. Sometimes we can't hear God because there's too much in the room. And then he begins to pray. The Bible said he prayed first. Peter prayed. The walls of that room heard him begin to pray. He prayed to God, and then he listened to God. And when he heard from God and he knew what was right, then he spoke. This anointed person, when he spoke, his voice carried. I want you to see his voice carried all the way over into the heavens. His voice carried all the way into the place where Tabitha was with Jesus. It carried all the way into that place. And it had authority in that place because he was speaking on behalf of Jesus. And when he said Tabitha, though she was in heaven, she heard the voice of Peter. And the body, which was dead, and the ears didn't even function. There was no life. There was no way. The blood wasn't flowing. The heart wasn't pumping. And that body made room for Tabitha's return. And this incredible thing takes place. And her body begins to live again. Her spirit rejoins. It's He spoke into the heaven. He spoke into death and by this powerful, this was an anointed man of God. And by the power of the anointed at work in him, it was so incredible that he lifted her up and took her out and presented her alive. And when it happened, the word spread. And within a matter of hours, many were coming to know Jesus. And he stayed in Joppa for a pretty long time. He stayed with Simon the Tanner. And while he's staying there, this incredible gospel is going all over. Why? Because someone with a true anointing, someone really flowed in the power of the Holy Spirit that was not limited to trying to convince somebody with enticing words of men's wisdom. But somebody who was operating in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit came into the house and the power and anointing of God caused him to speak into places and be heard in places that natural ears and natural people cannot hear because of the anointing. The walls of the prayer closet of an anointed prophet hear things. It's never spoken in public, but it's more powerful than what will be said from the pulpit. An anointed person can go into his closet and shut the door. And from there, he can change the world. He can change the outcome of his family. He can change the outcome of lost people. He can change the outcome of the church. He's anointed. He understands the power of the tent of meeting. For Moses led that entire nation from the tent of meeting. He would go again and again, and the Spirit of the Lord would set on top of it. And the power of anointing would begin to come. And when he spoke, he spoke as one with authority. Why? Because the anointing has an authority from God. And it speaks into the spiritual realm. It speaks into those things which are demonic, those things which are powers. It speaks in a place where you preach beyond the people. You preach, and when you preach in the anointing, the principalities and the powers of the air begin to shake in fear, and their holds begin to be tortured, and they can't hold on, and they begin to lose their grip, and lost people begin to be set free. And it's no more about your ability to convince or to teach or to train up. It's about the power and the working of the Holy Spirit that literally sets men free and releases the passion and power of an almighty God. Finally, he gets to Jordan. And again, Elijah says, stay here. And again, he says, as long as you live and God lives, I'm not going to stay behind. What is Jordan? Jordan was the final commitment. I didn't spend a lot of time if I had a If I were doing the series, which you think I am, but this isn't the series. This is pieces of the series. I'd have spent more time dealing with, with what it means to burn the plows, and I didn't take a lot of time there, but that's the beginning of a commitment. That's the commitment to chase the anointing. And now because he's been faithful through the process, he has one more commitment to make. He has to go over the Jordan. The Jordan changes everything. When the children of Israel were on one side of the Jordan, they... um, they had manna. On the other side, they didn't have manna anymore. If we follow the Lord to that side, what we're saying is we're going into the place where the battle begins, not where the battle ends. The anointing doesn't bring an end to your battles. It makes you a warrior. The anointing doesn't mean, well, now that I have the anointing, there's no issues. I'm, I'm, I've got the little thing now, and so I've got all that I need. No, when the anointing comes, you're going to go across the river to fight the battles. You're going to leave the cloud and the manna behind. You're going to have to learn the power of sowing and reaping. You're going to have to learn what it's like to live on that side. But on that side is where the promises are. On that side is where the fruit, on that side is where the blessing is. But you have to be empowered to live on that side. And so when the anointing comes, don't expect that suddenly 
believe now everybody is going. No, as a matter of fact, once the devil knows you're walking in a powerful anointing and you're not living in the natural level anymore, he'll begin to line up one after the other to come take you down. But don't be afraid. Don't worry at all. The power in you is greater than the power that's in the world. And one by one, you'll destroy. And every time you destroy an enemy, somebody will be set free. And every time you destroy another enemy, another group of people will be set free. And you'll begin to win victory after victory for the kingdom because of the anointing. He stood on the side of the bank and he said, everything on that side will be different. Never will it be the same. Just on the edge of that river stood the school of the prophets and they gathered with him and they said, why are you following him? Don't you know he's about to be taken up? He said, yes, I know it and I'm going to see him when he's gone. They almost mocked him. How it is today, how many of our young people that are so proud of their diplomas mock the young men and women who are going after the anointing. Ah, we all do this. It's not a big deal. Don't you understand grace? Well, don't you understand what Galatians says about grace? Don't you understand what Jude says about grace? Both declare that grace is not a license to sin, but an empowerment to live righteous. Don't start me on grace. You may be in a battle you don't want. And the power of this process, and he says, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'm following you. I know it'll never be the same again. I know that anointing brings incredible responsibility. I know it means that all the problems are going to come my way. I know it means that I'm going to have to go to places I would not have had to go. I'm going to have to do things I would not have had to do. But I have tasted it. It touched me. I felt it. I know what it's like, and I want it. I want it with all of its responsibility. I'm willing to keep my flesh in check. I am willing to keep my Bethel up in the fire burning of my personal altar. I am willing to do all that I've been called upon to do. I want it. I must have it. Please, I will follow you. And he steps over. And it's not till then that he asks him and he makes him verbalize it. He said, what is it? What is it you want from me? (laughs) And he says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Now, I like this kid. He said, Pastor Rick, I've seen you under the anointing. And it's good, but I want twice that much. I want a generation of young people that say, we've seen a little bit. We've seen some from grandma and grandpa, and we've seen a little bit from mom and dad. But we're the generation that's saying we want twice what we've ever seen. We want experience twice what we've ever even heard about. I've read about Smith Wigglesworth. I want twice what he had. I've read about some great old prophets that came through America. I want more than they ever knew. I want the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit at a level, and I'm willing to walk the walk. I'm willing to do what I want twice what you have, he said. Well, you've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Oh, it's not difficult for the Lord to give it to you, but it's difficult for you to own it. And he says, so, if you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. Well, you know, you know the story. Just in a matter of moments, the chariots of heaven, the chariot of fire, the Holy Spirit swoops down and picks him up. I don't, I don't know. I, I think, that, you know, prophets do have seem a little drama to them. I see that. So he, I can see he just kind of, he's kind of taunting him with it. I, say, I don't know. This, this is not scripture. I'm making all this up just so you know. I just see him going up in the chariot kind of taunting him. <laughs> here it is. Here it is. And then he just flips it out and it starts to float. I see Elisha running over and grabbing that thing. Well, you know the scripture. He immediately runs back to the river, and he, he pulls that thing back, and he looks into the heavens. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he smotes the water, and the water stand up on end. Those, those old schoolboys on the other side with their diplomas in their hand. Now, I don't know which side of the river you want to be on, but I want to be the one with the mantle in my hand. Oh, I, the diplomas are good because you learn some good stuff. Please don't think I'm, I'm bad-mouthing that. What I'm afraid is we think the diploma equals the anointing. And I'm going to tell you that all the diplomas in the world don't equal the anointing. Those old boys in our past, they made some mistakes. They didn't even always get their, get their uh, understanding of Scripture correct. They, they, all they knew how to do was scream, yell, and holler about like I've been doing tonight. 
give an altar call and pray people through to the Holy Spirit and deliver them from drugs and deliver them from alcohol and deliver them from demons and set them free. And out of that, they built a lot of churches. What would happen if we valued that again? I'm wrapping it up. As I told you last night, it takes me two or three wraps to get it done, but I'm wrapping it up. This great Elisha, as you know, worked twice as many miracles as Elijah. It's incredible to watch his life and study the miracles, and each one has a powerful point of its own. And as he's working his way through life, he picks up someone to wash his hands and be his servant, Gehazi or Gehazi. And Gehazi, Gehazi begins to follow him, and he's everywhere he is. As a matter of fact, when the woman's 12-year-old son died, you know, he, he, he was going to send Gehazi. No, no, she said, I've got to have the prophet. All the great stories of how this young man and what he saw, what he experienced. And then it came, it came in 2 Kings chapter 5 that Naaman came from some distance because uh, he had leprosy, and he had heard the man of God could work miracles. And so the servant goes out and meets him, and he says, can I help you? He said, yeah. He said, I have leprosy, and I have heard that, um, that the prophet can pray for me. And I've brought many gifts and a lot of money. And in my world, that motivates people. He said, yeah, this prophet's not real money motivated. So he goes in and tells the prophet, this, this great guy from this other country has come, but he's got, he's got leprosy, and he needs to be healed. And, by the way, uh, you know, I try to help keep the books, and we could use a good offering about right now. And the guy really has money. He's got a lot. He's got extra clothes. He's got gold. He's got, he's got food. He's got everything. He'd just set us up. It'd be a real good deal. And he's wanting to be generous, but he needs to be healed. He said, uh, he wants you to come see him. He said, I, I don't even want to go see him. I see this young man. This, this Elisha, now, he's, he's the older of the young men. I see Elisha saying, I don't even want to go around the money or the temptation that is with it. I don't want to get caught up in that. I, I don't want to go there. I'm not even going to go talk to him. I'm not even going to have the conversation. Because a long, long time ago, I made a commitment. And I burnt my plows. And I've crossed the Jordan. And the anointing is much more important to me than money. So you tell him, if he wants to be healed, go dip seven times in that old Jordan River. Well, you know the story. He complains a little bit. His servant says, if he told you to do something great, you'd have done it. You just got a pride issue. Go dip and see what happens. And so he does. He's healed. He comes back. Now, I'm telling you the whole story, so stay with me. He comes back, and he comes back to the prophet's house, and he says, he calls Gehazi out. He said, it's incredible. Look, my, my skin looks like baby skin. I mean, I am completely healed. The leprosy is gone. It's a miracle. God has done this. I did what the prophet of God said. Please, tell the prophet, I, I want to give an offering. I really want to. It's just, I'm not trying to buy him off. I've already, I want to bless the man. Look what the Lord used. Please let me give the offering. So he runs back in and says, he's back, and it's work. He did real good, and he obeyed, and he's healed, and he would like to really give you a big offering. He said, I don't want his money. Tell him to leave and tell of what the Lord has done. Well, a little bit later, Gehazi gets to thinking about all that money. And so he chases off after him and he stops him and lies. He said, oh, uh, he said, uh, the prophet got to rethinking his thoughts. And he thought, you know what? It would be good if we had two or three suits of clothes and maybe a few pieces of silver and maybe a little gold and, and maybe a little, you know, oh, I would love to do that. Tell the prophet, thank you for allowing me to, and he just pours all this stuff. And so Gehazi goes and he hides all the stuff. You know the story. He hides all the stuff and, and he, now he's got money. He's never had it before. He's been working as a youth pastor and they don't make much. And so he's got it all put up here now and he's pretty pleased with where he's at. And so then he goes in and he's barely there when Elisha calls him in and he says, Gehazi, come in. He said, yes, sir. He said, and I love, I love the way he prayed. He said, don't you know that God shows me things? He said, yes. He said, why did you chase him down and lie to him? And here's the end of the story. He said, now catch this. He says, now, from this day, you will have the leprosy. You get the money, but you get the leprosy too. And when you have leprosy, according to the law, you're disqualified from the ministry. It was over. The man stood in line for the anointing of the Almighty God. 
He stood in line to be the third generation to grab a hold of this great thing. And who knows? He may have done twice as much as what Elisha done. Who knows how the story of Israel could have been different if he had walked in line in favor that he should have walked in and stayed faithful. But he saw the money come by the house. I don't know how many of our young men and women have seen the money come by. Suddenly, you know what? You've got a great singing voice. Why don't we put you on some TV show and see if we can't make you famous and see if the devil... Listen, I believe this with all my heart. I believe if you have a price, the devil will pay it. You've got to come to a place where you're just not for sale. That you would rather have the anointing than anything the world can offer. The rest of the story is pretty sad. Because the anointing that would have went to Gehazi ends up going to the grave with Elisha. As a matter of fact, you know this well, his last miracle was done from his dead body. The anointing was still there, and when they threw the old dead man in the tomb with him, he came back to life, and his final miracle was done from his dead body because he took the anointing to the grave. Some of you older men and women that are walking in a powerful anointing, by all means, do not take it to the grave with you. You begin to find some young people until you can teach them how to walk in the anointing and lead them in the power and the fullness of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Teach them how to walk in the prophetic. Teach them how to pray for the sick. Teach them how to pray alone. Teach them, help them develop a personal Bethel. Lead them in these processes so you can hand them this anointing so they won't chase after wealth and money and the things of the world and all that's out there saying that must be great. I must have it. No, no. What you must have is the anointing. And if you've never tasted it, I want you to taste it tonight. I want the anointing to touch you. I want the Spirit of the Lord to begin to move on you and awaken a passion and a desire in you because I don't want my anointing to go to the grave with me. What little bit I own, it's not as big as I need, and I hope you own more than I do. I pray that this generation that's following after me has a double portion of whatever I find and whatever I can come up with. I want that anointing. I told you a little bit last night about the revival. I couldn't tell you much, but I can tell you it was possible. It was was powerful. It was awesome what I saw, but there was but that anointing continued. I became to be anointed for the cleaning up of the mess the revival made. And that anointing was still there. And it led, he led me to do those things. And then we anoint, and that anointing, I tried to lead by the anointing. I spend more time waiting on God to speak to me. I go into meetings and everybody has an opinion. And sometimes I have to do what Peter did. And I have to clear the room. I hear what you're saying. But I obey the almighty God. I've got to hear his voice. I've got to know what he's doing. If he's for me, who can be against me? He, if we can't get him him to do this and often what they're hearing is what he's saying they're men of God hearing his voice but if I can't feel that sense are you hearing what I'm saying there's a place above the way we've been doing business there's a place in the power of the Holy Spirit there is a place that was in the book of Acts that is still available for the church today it's an anointing it's more than speaking in tongues it's a powerful working of the Holy Spirit in and through us like we haven't experienced in a while There's a price, but you get a whole lot more than what you pay for. And I want that anointing for you, but that doesn't help you. You have to want that anointing for you. I'd love to pray for you tonight. I'd love for us to pray one for another, for each other. I'd love us to get alone and pray. I'd love us to pray and begin the process. I would like tonight for some plows to be burnt. I would like tonight for some people come to the place where they're saying to God, I'm willing to kiss that goodbye. I'm willing to tell, I don't need that anymore. You can't get there tonight because there's a process. God's going to deal with you and train you and work in you. Don't expect to own it tonight. But I would like some people to say, I may not be able to own it tonight, but I want to start the journey toward owning the anointing. And some of you older folks, and maybe you're younger and you you already walked, you've already purchased it. But, but some of you folks that have walked in it in the past and you've, you, have, you have known it, but over the years, you've kind of let it wane a little bit. I like what Paul said. He said, stir it back up. Stir it back up. Get it moved. Fan into flame the fire that was once in you. Some of us, some of us been around a while and we begin to lean on what other people are telling us and we begin to model after this model and that model. But there was a time in our life when we were modeled after whatever the Holy Spirit was doing and we were being, and we were want to rekindle that. Some of us, I want that back. Lord, I hear what you're saying to me tonight, and I'm back. I'm back. I'm, and some of you, God, I want it for the first time, but I want it. And some of you have tasted it, but you didn't start the journey. And you remember that moment, or those moments, and now you realize there's a journey from there to ownership. And God wants to make you the owner of the mantle. 
I pray that would happen in the Ohio network. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, by your power and your spirit, speak. Holy God, speak. Speak directly into the hearts of those who sit at these tables in this room. Speak directly into their soul, into their mind, into the psyche of who they are, into the depth of their life. Begin to speak in that still, small voice way down on the inside. Begin to speak to them and begin to draw them and begin to call unto them and say, come on, this is it, this is it, this is it. The thing you've been saying, I need something, this is it. I need something. I'm spirit-filled, but I need, this is it. You're calling them, God. You're calling them to a walk. You're calling them to a prayer closet. You're calling them to to step over, to give up, make changes. You're calling them not just to have touched, been touched, but to own this thing and to be owned of it. Oh, God, I pray for them. I pray in the name of Jesus that those, those Lord, who have had it and walked in it, but they've let the fire go out a little bit. They're not one, what they once were. They've begun to give over, and you, Holy Spirit, are dealing with them. I pray they would be stirred up tonight to remember again the power of the anointing. I pray for all of them. According to what you're doing in each one individually, I pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Move us toward the anointing. The anointing is expensive, but it's worth it. I don't want you to be embarrassed. I don't want you to try to protect your reputation. That'll keep you from the anointing. I want you to be honest and obey the Holy Spirit. If there's one or a hundred, it doesn't matter to me. I just want you to obey the Holy Spirit. I want to begin with those of you who have had times in your life where you've walked in a heavy anointing, but you feel that right now you're not walking at the same level of anointing you once did. I know I skipped Saul, but Saul once had the anointing, and when he lost the anointing, he became an angry person, and everybody that worked for him suffered. Once you've had the anointing and you cease to walk in it, you're a miserable person to be around. And if you've become that person or you sense you're becoming that person or you sense just enough that you know if you don't do something quick, you're going to become a cynical old preacher. And God doesn't want that and you don't want that and we don't need that. And what God is saying to you is before that happens, I want you to stir up the Spirit of God and I want you to again go after me. If God's dealing with you, I ask you to have the courage and have the the, the determination and the faith enough just to stand right where you are. One, two, three, go. Don't wait. Don't discuss it. Don't think about it. Just obey God. Just obey God. These folks in here are going to love you. That's not the issue. Just stand. Now I've got another question. Those of you who say, maybe I've touched it, but I know I don't own it, and I understand there's a journey, and I don't want the stuff the world's offering and the young generation's calling me to. I want the anointing. I want the anointing, and I'm ready to start the journey. I want you to stand up. I mean, if this isn't you, then stay in your seat. But if it's you, I want you to stand up. I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. And maybe you've never felt it, but you know it's real. Maybe while I was speaking tonight, something began to happen in you, and you begin to say, this is it. This is what I've been praying for. I didn't know what to say. If that's you, I want you to stand up right now. Just stand up. Just stand up. Lift both hands up now to the Almighty God and say, God, I'll burn my plows. Tell Him, God, my past doesn't matter. I'll kiss stuff goodbye. I'll walk away from all of that. Lord Jesus, help me build a Bethel. Lord, help me deal with my flesh. Come show me, Jesus, what I must do. Lead me on a journey. Take me through the process, God. Make me that person that can own the anointing of the Almighty God. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus as they stand with their hands lifted, as they stand, oh God, in the place where they are, you would hear their hearts cry. You would hear them say to you, I need a new anointing. I need an anointing. I want to own it, God. Lead me on a journey. Make me the owner. By the time I'm an older man, God, I want to be a powerful old man. I want to be an old man of righteousness and anointing. I want to scare the devil. I want to turn back time. I want to turn away the works of the enemy. I want everything you have oh God I want to know what it means to be by your spirit if that's you some are already coming forward why don't you do that why don't you just symbolically step out of where you are and come forward and get on your face get on your knees and just begin to say God that's me that's me that's me it's me and just cry out you know how to pray just cry out to God Father, in the name of Jesus, every one of them, every one of them, every one of them are mighty men.
men and women. Every one of them have heard the call. They've heard the call that Elisha experienced, but they need the anointing. It can't be done in our own power. We need that spiritual jet stream to come along. We need that spiritual activity of God. We need to be righteous before you and holy before you, pleasing to you in everything we do. We need it right, God. Deal with us. Deal deep with us. Deal in the deepest part of us. Oh, God, make us holy. Make us holy. Make us holy. Make us holy. Teach us how to walk it all week long. Teach us how to get along with you. Cause us no longer to be intimidated by an empty room in a Bible. But make us passionate about being in that room with you. Oh, God, in the name of Jesus. 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 Let the Spirit fall now. Let the Spirit fall now. Let the Spirit fall right now. Right now. Right now. Right now.